Well, can you open up to the book of Acts? We have been in a 10-part series that has been a fast track through this book. What we wanted to do was take a look, a snapshot of the, the work of the Lord through His Holy Spirit by His servants in the Great Commission. We're actually in the morning service. We were in, a, in the middle of a series going through Mark, and we will go back to that at the end of this series as the term four starts back. But coming, uh, uh, thanks Vic, one enough for me is, is, is plenty. Uh, <laughs> we... Um, uh, but, but we're taking this, this, this snapshot to sort of look into the future from where we're standing in Mark's gospel. The, the apostles, they're way too much like, like us. They are, they are idiots. They have no clue what's going on. They keep getting in the way of Jesus' mission. They keep misunderstanding what the task of God's people is. They have just about no clue. And yet, in what will be a short period of time, they're going to be turned into the war-minded missionaries that explode through the Roman Empire, scattering the seed of the gospel and watering it with their blood. Something that we've seen continually through uh, the book of Acts is we've been looking at all of the sermons. What we what we've may not have read the actual verses of, yet we've seen the theme of, is this repeated phrase through the book of Acts that the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. Or otherwise it might be the word of God increased and grew. It's, it's all throughout the book of Acts, these, these reminders that, that what happens when, when seed is thrown into the ground, when we say that it, it's growing and the crop is coming, that, that's multiplying. The seed is multiplying. But we don't mean that the seeds themselves are popping out new seeds. What we mean is that the seed is doing its work in bringing new life and growth and fruit. And so when the, the writer of the Acts, Luke, tells us by the Holy Spirit that the word of the Lord increased and multiplied, the Bible didn't grow. It doesn't mean that more was added to the word of the God in the gospel. What it means is that it did its most natural, supernatural work. When the word of God, which Peter calls the seed, the everlasting, undying, imperishable, eternal seed, is planted into human hearts, it grows. It gets for itself a crop to bring to the knee, to bring to the throne of Jesus Christ. That's what we ought to expect. And therefore, preaching is nothing more than just piercing a bag of seed and throwing it over fertile ground. That's what sermons are. When you stand up in the street corner and you preach, when you sit down in the lunchroom and you share the gospel, when you put things over social media and hundreds can see it, when you do all that you can to be speaking the good news of Jesus, it is seed being thrown to the wind and the sovereign God plants it where he will. The word of the Lord increases and multiplies whenever it is preached faithfully. And so in Acts chapter 26 now, we're actually going to see the last public word-for-word proclamation from Paul. What's happened since our last sermon is, uh, where were we? We were in Acts chapter 20 and we saw his address to the Ephesian elders. And what we saw there was, uh, uh, was, was Paul was on his way back to Jerusalem because he knew that the Holy Spirit had told him two things. If you go to Jerusalem, you will be arrested and flogged and beaten and only hardships await you. And the other message from the Holy Spirit was, you must go to Jerusalem. Such was the life of Paul. Mission and suffering. And so he went as he knew he had to. And when he got there, he was arrested under entirely false charge. He was just sitting there quietly worshiping in the temple 
crowd ran in, arrested him, thought that he was here to stir up riots and threw him before the court. The Sanhedrin tried to charge him. Then he was put before uh, Festus and Festus tried him and didn't really see anything wrong. He's like, man, these Jews are just getting, and Nick is in a knot for no reason. I don't see, this is just a theological problem, not a public problem. And, and so then Agrippa came and even was able to, uh, 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 because Festus and Felix couldn't find anything wrong with him, he was then passed over to Agrippa, the, the king, one of the Herodian kings. He was uh, uh, allowed to come and try him uh, to see if there was anything wrong because what Paul had done was he'd appealed to Caesar. He was about to be released, and, and, and uh, uh, the, the guy who was trying him said, I'm going to let you go back and be tried by the Jews because he knew they wanted to assassinate him and he wanted to play into their hands. It's all about politics. And so he just said, I'm going to send you back there. And Paul utilized his citizenship right and said, No, I appeal to be tried in the court of Caesar. And therefore, as a citizen, they had to honor that, send him over to Rome. It's going to be uh, 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 that which really opens the door for much mission. But nonetheless, we can't go into all the details. Where we are now then, we're still in, we're in Caesarea, which is maybe a two-hour drive from Jerusalem. Uh, where, uh, he was arrested in Jerusalem. Now he's over in the royal little uh, uh, outpost of Caesarea where all the, the kings and dignitaries did their official roles. And there he is. I want you to see that in Acts 25, and we can't read all of it, but what you see is that Agrippa and Bernice, his wife, they say, we're going to come and we're going to try, Paul. We want to hear his defense of himself. And that's what we're going to read. His sermon is a defense and his legal defense, actually, he just utilizes it to preach a sermon. I love it. But what we see is that Agrippa comes in. Uh, 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 you have to picture the scene. Picture a large Roman-built colonnade uh, 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 building all lined with gold and statues and the like. This is, a, this is a civil magistrate's building in this enormous hall. And up at the stage, at the far end, on the opposite end of the hall from these enormous swinging doors, sat two throne-like seats, one for Agrippa and one for Festus. <clears throat> Let me double-check that I'm getting this right, because it's either Festus or Felix. It is Festus, yeah. Uh, great name. Uh, so, uh, uh, so there's these two seats sitting currently empty at the end of the hall and lining the walls and all throughout the bleachers are the military heads, the generals, everybody who had any civil importance comes to these sort of Met Gala type events. They're all dressed to a T. They are looking tremendous, showing off all of their pomp. And what we see in tw uh, uh, verse 23 of Acts 25, can you just go there? I want to... I want us to feel the scene. So on that next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. I want you to picture this, this, this pompous walk, Luke tells us. They walked in and marched in this huge hall full of people who would have been parading, praising, and clapping at the entrance of Agrippa, the king. He would have been wearing his purple robe and a gold crown. His wife, Bernice, would have been dressed up also in glorious attire. And Festus would have come in uh, uh, just prior to him and worn a scarlet robe, a red crimson robe, and waiting up on the stage to, to welcome Agrippa to the throne. 
This would have been a slow walk of fame and honor as everybody applauded them. Sometimes, sometimes evangelism is like war in the trenches among a lot of foot soldiers. Sometimes, though, God's providence, the way that God sort of works history and circumstances, we get to go right into the wolf's den. We get to go not just in the trenches, we actually get to go and face front, eye-to-eye, face-to-face with kings and rulers. Sometimes it's grassroots, and, and that's us going out into the city, handing out tracts, chatting with people that we know and we love. We're talking the gospel, and it's grassroots. Sometimes God gives this upstream blessing of providence where, where he enables the church to actually have this very powerful witness to the most powerful elites of the world. After this meeting today, there will be no one left, no dignitary, no civil ruler, no authoritarian left in all of Israel that has not heard from their own ears the gospel of the Christians that is making a ruckus in their towns. They've been preaching to the, to the citizens, to the people, to the masses, and now they're going to come full circle, and it's going to be coming down from the top as well. Every government department in Caesarea and Judea would, would have been there. And then, after this pompous walk with the trumpets and the bagpipes, and they're sitting down on the throne, then walks in Paul. Do you remember from the last time I described Paul what he looks like? From all of the beatings that he had received... The people who were his disciples who wrote letters in the first century, we read their writings, they said that he had bowed legs that would make him waddle like a penguin because of how often he had been beaten. He would be bowed over because his back was so scarred up and muscles were so destroyed, he had constant back issues. They say he was bent over as he waddled. Also say that they didn't have a, 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 a presentation guy for him. He had a huge monobrow. A, a caterpillar brow is how the people talk. His friends talked about him that way. I'd hate to hear what, the, uh, what his uh, enemies would say. His face was mangled. He had eye problems, also probably because of the beatings the, that he had received. And he would have been dressed in nothing but a prisoner's tunic, waddling in to this enormous, almost godlike show of pomp. He was not dressed in glory, and nothing there impressed him. He had seen the king of kings. He had one time been riding in his pomp and, and in his fury and in his pride on a road with, with governors signed edicts and with robes on and with men following him in his command. He had been that man and then seen the shining glory of Jesus that made the midday sun look like midnight. He had seen real glory of a real king. And as he, from his dark prison cell, is then opened up into this glorious room of pomp, he's hardly impressed. He waddles in, knowing that, though invisible, the king of kings stands at his side and is empowering him to give witness. He stands up and he is called on. While he had no crown, he awaited the crown of that would be his in heaven. While he had no robe, he was clothed in dignity and strength. Those who had killed Jesus, who had tried to kill Jesus as a baby, the Herodians, right? Herod the Great, this man's great-grandfather, and Agrippa, his, 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 whose, whose 
The brother of the man now sitting in front of him had been the one who had killed James, beheaded him just to please the Jews. And the other one was the one who had killed John the Baptist. This family was an adulterous, incestuous, murderous, bloodthirsty family. And just in case you thought that maybe this married couple were at least monogamous and somewhat decent, Bernice is Agrippa's sister. There you go. And Paul stands before them. He had a lot of self-control to not pick a fight with everything that was wrong. He had one eye, and that was to preach the gospel. Let's see what he says. Verse 20, chapter 26, verse 2. Short, bent over, crooked eyes, monobrow Paul speaking to the kings. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to be making my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. He's been at the heart and center of most of them. It's a sly little comment there from Paul. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now he goes on with what, is, what his life has been that would push against the false accusations. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify honestly, that accordingly to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our forefathers, to which the 12 tribes of Israel hope to attain as they earnestly worship day after day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Yes, I, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, that is, deny the faith of Jesus. Blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them to every foreign city. And in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than that sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? He didn't know who he was, but he knew he was in charge. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to, and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those that are sanctified by faith in me. What a commission Paul received that day. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then those all throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, 
performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and to the great, saying nothing but what the prophets of Mo and Moses said that would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, with a loud voice, said, Paul, you are out of your mind. Can you hear the military generals all start to chuckle around? Everybody who works for you knows that you laugh when, when, when your superior makes a joke. And so they're all there chuckling away at, Agrippa's comment, at Festus's comment. All of your learning is driving you out of your mind. More mockery. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I, I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He's confused. Are you evangelizing me right now? And Paul said, whether short time or long, I would to God that not only you, but to those all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. May God bless the reading of this amazing testimony and sermon to us this morning. Amen? Wow, what, a, what an address that he gives. He sneaks a sermon into his legal defense. You can see in the, in the first section we see here, <coughs> Paul's address is very much just recounting his life. He recounts his life before Jesus Christ and had appeared to him and commissioned to him. And, and you see that he's saying, I, I was a youth. I grew up in, uh, in Tarsus. I was known among the Jewish community. Maybe something we don't, we don't realize is that had Paul not become a Christian apostle, we almost certainly would have known of him as a philosopher and historical author outside of the Bible. He was a massive learner. He's kind of John Calvin-level learning, having done some kind of equivalent of three PhDs by the time he's 21. He was a genius. He was a, a prolific author. He had studied under one of the great Jewish teachers, Gamaliel. And, and so, so he's saying, the Jews know me. They all know my history. I went to school with them. The people making the accusations know I've not been a rioter, some kind of blasphemous unbeliever. I'm a Jew. I'm, a, I'm thoroughly a Pharisee. In fact, I was so much of a Pharisee, so much of a Jew, that I believed the prophets. And you know what I believe the prophets to say? Do you know what I, I know from the scriptures God had spoken to Abraham? It was that the resurrection would become reality. That God had promised life for all beyond death. So, so that's why he comes to this phrase where he says he's making the, Jew, the Christian gospel, he's showing it in its Jewish roots. He's saying it in very Hebrew language. Jesus even spoke to me in Hebrew, Paul says. He's making it sound so Hebrew there, as, as it really is, that as he's saying, my, my gospel is nothing more than what all Jews ought to believe from their Bible. The Old Testament, the scrolls that we read and worship God night and day, he said. I'm just preaching what Abraham would have me preach. 
I'm just preaching what the, apostle, what the prophets and the writings said. God has fulfilled his promises. Is, is that so terrible a thing to say in the Jewish community? God fulfilled his promises? And therefore he uses that line. He says, so why is it so strange to my accusers or to you that I am speaking about the resurrection? If you claim to believe the scriptures, if you claim to believe God's promises, then you should be awaiting the day that somebody comes preaching the resurrection of the Messiah. You can see the logic in what he's saying. Something that we might also not realize is that Agrippa, the Herodians were half Jews. So, so they, to, to please the Jews, they, they called themselves prophet believers. You know, they were very religious people, marrying their sister and all. And, and so, they, uh, so, so Paul's calling them out on it, saying, you're very involved in Jewish history. You know the prophets. I, you claim to believe them, so I'll call you out on it. And so there is his, his Jewish gospel roots that goes to form his defense. Because the accusation had been, here's this. Gentile-loving, Jew-hating, Israel-destroying, Rome-opposing, random, coming up to stir everybody against our nation Israel, and of course against Caesar. And so he makes the defense. I'm doing nothing of the sort. I'm just preaching the Jewish fulfillment of prophecy. And then you can see his, secondly, his commission as an apostle. And you, you see in this the comparison between the men dressed up in pomp and the real king who actually has authority and power. You see, sort of from verse 12 onwards, he's saying, I was going to Damascus, uh, uh, but then Jesus, who outshone the midday sun, he appeared to me and sent me. Paul defends his ministry as a genuine commission. This holds weight with kings. If you catch somebody doing something that you don't like and you drag them before the governors and, and then he pulls out an edict saying, I'm just fulfilling a royal command. You have a problem with me, that, that's fine, but you have to fight the guy who signed the edict. Paul's doing the same thing. Agrippa, you know what it is to commission a man. You know what you would do if a man heard in your presence, in your throne room, you gave him commands. What, he just ripped that up and walked off and did his own thing? What would you do, Agrippa? I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I'm a man commissioned and I'm obedient. That holds weight with a man of, 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 of politics, of authority, of royal descent. But you see in verse 13, again, as we said already, the, the, out, the, the comparison between the glory of the two kings. Verse 13, I want to read it again. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. When he had seen the shining light, who was it that was behind that shining light being very much the, the source of all light that there possibly is? That is Jesus, Agrippa. The Jesus your great-grandfather couldn't even outpower as a baby. The Jesus whose cousin, your grandfather, killed John the Baptist. The Jesus whom apostles have been preaching and your brother killed James, the apostle of Jesus. This Jesus, you're familiar with him, aren't you, Agrippa? And two things, therefore, are coming ringing through this reality. When he, when he echoes Jesus' words in this big hall, the kings, the generals, they needed to hear two things. The Jesus 
that the Jews assured you was dead? Right? The uh, Pilate said, Jews, you've got a little army, go and protect the tomb. And they failed. And so all this resurrection business really, really puts a bit of a, a strain on the relationship between the Romans and the Herodians and the Jews. You didn't do your job. You couldn't even keep a dead guy dead. How hard is that? And so Paul is here saying, yeah, the rumors you've heard about this dead Jesus, he's the one speaking to me. He's alive. But then also, secondly is, Jesus, through those words he said to Paul, can now be applied to the people. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, Paul. So that the kings and the generals who have been locking up Christians and beating them up and slapping them over the head and taking away their houses and their children, those people now needed to realize this Jesus, who was dead and is now alive and is shining with blazing glory, he considers an attack on the Christians an attack on him. They would shake if they realized the implications of that. They would be afraid if they really heard what Paul was saying. And so here Paul drives home, I'm a commissioned apostle. I've been sent. And you are opposing that king. And then we see, and this is where we'll, we'll really dig into what Paul said. We see from verses 18, basically till the end of his address, Paul just preaches the gospel in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 different ways. <laughs> I love it. Far from trying to defend himself, he just preaches Jesus. Fully aware, like Peter and James before the Sanhedrin, if we're worth defending, Jesus can do that. But I'm going to preach the gospel. So he says, verse 18, basically just, just quoting Jesus. I'm not, I'm not preaching. I'm just quoting what Jesus said to me. Right, You can see him sneaking it in. He says in verse 18, this mission that I've been sent on, this gospel that Jesus has commissioned me to, is King Agrippa. First of all, verse 18, to open their eyes, that is, both Jews and Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. How many layers there are, how many angles there are, like a diamond that you pick up. And, and, and it's not just a rock, it's not just a sphere, it's cut in so many different facets so that the different way you look at it shines out different lights and different elements of beauty. Well, the gospel is this, my friends. If you're still in your sin, if, if you're still an unbeliever, if Jesus is still an enemy of you as you're an enemy of him, you still live in your own sin and living your life as you would want to live. As, as you hear the call to repentance and the call to change your ways and you despise that and you hate that and you want for everything to just rule your own life, but your guilty conscience keeps scraping its nails on the blackboard. It keeps piercing you as you try and go to sleep, as you try and live your own life. You know what is wrong. You know that if this Jesus, blazing brighter than the midday sun, was to meet you tonight, if he had any ounce of justice and righteousness, you would not be welcomed into his eternal heaven. That's you. I want you to hear what Paul calls the gospel, that Jesus offers to you, commands to you, 
and opens up to you. First of all, it is the opening of eyes from blindness. If you are not a believer, you are not fully eyed open, wise and intellectual and simply making a better decision. You have been blinded since birth. The devil put another hood over your face and you have had your eyes plucked out through sin. You're by no means seeing clearly thinking logically, if that Jesus, you're just happy for him to be your opponent. If you look at life and you see how you lead your life, the way that you live, and the things that Jesus commands, and you think, I'm, I'm doing fine. Friends, it's blindness. And the gospel now comes, not asking you to perform some kind of eye surgery on yourself, but the gospel comes ready to implant new spiritual eyes, to give new eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. You are blind and Jesus can give you sight. Then he says, and then to turn from darkness to light. Alternate lifestyles are not just another shade of the color of the rainbow. It's not just that there's the, there's the, the, the yellow stream of light, which is Christianity, and then there's Buddhism, which is the red stream of light, and whichever you, your alternate lifestyle is just different forms of equal light. No, friends. Jesus is the blazing sun. You are living in a cesspit of darkness. Paul had just been, been dragged from a dark, dreary prison and opened up into this blazing, pompous, glorious hall, and he's telling them, that's what salvation's like. Luther had written after all his years in, in, in self-deprecation and whipping himself over the guilt of his sin in the Catholic Church as a monk, and he said as he realized reading and preaching Romans what it meant to be justified by faith alone, he said it was as if in that moment the doors of paradise swung open. That's salvation. The turning from darkness into light. And then from turning from, from, uh, to God's power from Satan's power. You, you may just find that maybe, maybe just too supernatural, too silly, too old-fashioned, to this belief in, in Satan. But friends, if you're not in Jesus Christ by faith, then you are as much a puppet of the devil. You, you, you're in his forces. You're in his trenches. You're slaves to whatever he might lead you to do. You, you are very much under. You don't, you don't need to wear the pentagram do the big hoop rings, I don't know, whatever, whatever they do, right? You don't need to sacrifice humans, drink the goat's blood in order to be truly one that follows the plans of Satan. You need only to reject the kingship of Jesus Christ. And the call of the gospel is leave behind the power of Satan, which enslaves. And Jesus will, as the gospel is preached, break those chains, rip you from that dungeon, and place you on a royal throne in his kingdom. The power of Satan to the power of God. And then you have a, a place, he's, Paul then says in verse 18, a place among those who are sanctified. Do you realize that the, the mindset of the people that day is immensely prideful? They have a place in King Agrippa's court. Maybe they bribed their way, slept their way, killed their way, bought their way up to that spot. They've got a place among those who are glorious. And Paul offers, I know what Christians look like compared to you fine folk in the galleries here in Agrippa's court. I know that to say that you can come from here and come and take a seat with us poor, dying Christians out in the church on Sunday, I know what that might seem like, humanly speaking, but I'm, I'm inviting you. Come and take a place among those who are made holy. 
not glorious, not rich, not powerful, but holy. This is Paul's invitation and my invitation today. I, I don't know what invitations you might have, what, what clubs you're a member of, what sort of prestige you seek after in life, but the call of Jesus is very much, humanly speaking, a call downwards, but it is a call to have a place in the sanctified, holy, forgiven family of God. Come, have a place among those who are sanctified. And we see also that he says that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and that is what makes everything else make sense. He's calling these people guilty. Like, I'm on charge here today, I know. I'm trying to prove my innocence, and I've already done that, but I'm saying you're in heaven's courtroom right now. God, through his son Jesus, by the Spirit, through my lips, are holding you to account. Where is your judge? Where is your lawyer? Who will free you from the accountability before God's law? It's you who are guilty, and I offer full forgiveness. Because the one whom your people killed, because the one whom you despise, because the one whom you've blasphemed is alive at the right hand of God, having bled to death for us, for you, I have been sent. And sometimes I go willingly on a mission trip and sometimes I'm dragged here in chains, but I've been sent even today to preach to you. Did you realize getting ready this morning when you were putting on your ties and your robes that you were actually getting ready to come and face your courtroom? Welcome, court is in session, and free acquittal and justification and freedom and forgiveness is on offer. What a powerful gospel to these pompous people. And he goes on, verse 19, Therefore I was not disobedient, and so he says, So I've been preaching, and what have I been preaching, you may ask? Well, let me tell you, let me just tell you again, a second round of gospel uh, uh, repetitions in verse 19 to 21. He says, but I declared to those in Damascus, then to Jerusalem, then Judea, then the Gentiles. That's what Jesus would said would happen. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all of the nations. He says that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me and tried to kill me. And so here's, here's the second round of what the gospel is. Repentance. I've been telling you, there's light, there's sight, there's life, there's member in God's family, there's forgiveness, but the condition, you have to believe what I'm saying, which is turning to God in faith, and you must repent. You're a murderous general, you're, you're a murderous king, you're an incestuous lord. You need to repent from your deeds and become looking like somebody who is a member of a holy family. If you were called into the Herodian family, you've got to stop whatever other business you were doing and start looking after the family business. Put on the family colors, wave the family flag, put on the family signet ring, and so Paul is calling them. The entry point into the hall of God's salvation is just faith. Don't try and do good deeds, don't try and impress him, don't buy your way in. He accepts nothing. Just believe. But when you come in, God will start undressing you. God will start putting on to you holiness obedience, love, faith, goodness, gentleness, purity. So the call today is to believe to us today, right here, Hope Reformed Baptist Church, zip back to modern day. The call is to be saved by faith. But that will begin a life of performing deeds by the power of God unto repentance that, that makes the gospel of holiness make sense. Your, your life will shine the nature of God and his holiness as you live. 
And then he goes again, verse 20, uh, 22 and 23. He says, And all I was doing was saying what the prophets and Moses said. And then he recapped the gospel again. That, that the Christ must suffer and die, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Do you see these elements thrown in? Jesus must suffer. There's, there's no way, Paul is saying. There's no way to read your Old Testament and miss the fact that the Christ promised had to suffer for sin. The dying lambs, the bleeding goats, the broken neck doves, plucked and sacrificed, those weren't a symbol that the Christ who was coming was going to be have his nails done, his crown fitted nicely by people on earth. It was a sign that if there is forgiveness of sins, there must be payment. There must be shedding of blood. So Paul says, that the Old Testament that I've been preaching is that Jesus must have died, that he had to rise, and that then because he rose as the first one, he dove down into the grave and popped up on the other side and then calls all of us, come and die. It's, the other side is okay. Look, the other side is life eternal. Come, die to yourself. I will raise you again. And if they put you before kings and they put swords before your neck and if they hang you by the rope, it's okay. On the other side of death is eternal life, Paul is saying. Jesus, being the first to rise, therefore would proclaim light. And then in verse 25, this is where it really gets personal. Right? Festus stands up and goes, okay, that's enough. Before all of my very obedient generals start becoming Christians, stops them. You're just going crazy, Paul. Like how much of, we're reading that and we're amazed at his intellect and his connectivity with the Bible. And, and then Festus just says, shut up, Paul. You, you're crazy, man. Take a look at this guy. And the galleries laugh. You're learning too much. You're reading too much. Enough of the prophets. And Paul, he's just not a nice evangelical, is, is the point I want to make. He's a bold Christian, and I don't think the two are the same. He's not a modern-day, nice, polite Christian. He's a missionary who has the guts and the spine of Jesus instilled into his body. And he says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Still respectful. No, I'm not out of my mind. I am speaking true and rational words. Let, let us just see here. If we're going to be making defenses, just because it's a supernatural gospel, doesn't mean we get to sort of suspend the laws of logic and order and reason and just start and I speaking in tongues at people and strap them down and use holy water and, 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 and have no, no sense of logic and cohesion. Let's be those who, like Paul, can say, re-listen to what I just said. I'm being true and rational. I'm being honest with you. Let's be those people. The gospel is the most true and rational word that has ever been spoken from heaven, and we ought to present it in such a way. However, then he says, while he is true and rational, we see his bold persuasion. Look at verse 26 and 27. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. He's, he's calling Festus out. He's calling Agrippa out. He's saying, Festus, I know you think I'm not speaking rationally. I am. But the king, now you never address the king like that. When you're the one on trial, he goes, nah, this king up here, most excellent Festus, this, this Agrippa at your right hand, he knows. He's hiding there behind his sister, wife. I know they're holding hands and he's trying to shrink down in his throne. He knows what I'm talking about. He's seen it all. He's read it all. He says, I speak boldly. Friends, evangelism takes that. 
If you're going to really just call people out and, and lovingly, respectfully do so, you just need to be able to speak truly. Just be honest. Just, just say what is true. No, no, I, I'm convinced. You know what I'm talking about. No, you were actually acting sinfully then. No, you're not a good person. Right? No, actually, I don't respect your other religion. No, sorry, not all paths do lead to Rome. No, in fact, in fact, spiritualism is not the same as Christianity. In fact, no, I don't worship the same God as you. You just speak the truth. Boldly to a king, he did that. I'm speaking boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. King Agrippa, he addresses him. King Agrippa, there's lots of Jews in the room. Do you believe the prophets? Now, he can say, no, so don't preach them, and then all the Jews go in an uproar. Or he can say, yes, uh, and therefore be struck by what, he's going, what Paul would then hold him to. Or he can do what uh, he does, which is say nothing. <clears throat> do you believe the prophets? Silence. You don't need to answer. I know that you believe. I know you do. I know you know the testimony of God. And then Agrippa, in, in his response, he, he says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Can we just can we have a, a gospel, a message, an evangelism strategy so that when we're talking to people, it doesn't get five years down the track and they go, have you been trying to make me a Christian? Uh, that, that, should be, that should not be something that is, that is unnoticeable. We should just be very honest with everybody. I'm trying to convert you. I love you. I'm trying to take over the world. That is exactly what the Christians are trying to do. Not through swords, not through politics, but through preaching. Yes, every one of you. I want you to all be at church with me on Sunday. Was that on obvious? Make it obvious. Don't let, don't let the time pass that they look back 20 years being saved by some other means and ask you, why didn't you try and make me a Christian? Well, I did. I gave you candy on Easter. I, um, I said you looked nice. I was probably the nicer person in the office. Uh, the Mormon was pretty smiley, but I was pretty nice. Um, I did all sorts of things. I was trying to convert you. If it can't be noticed, it's simply not biblical. The urgent plea is what we must do is what we see Paul said. He says, I, I'm sorry if it wasn't obvious. Yes, I'm here to convert you all. He says, I would, not just you, but that everybody who hears me this day might be exactly as I am. Not just a Christian, a missionary, a converting, preaching Christian. One thing I wish for you, though, is that you would not have these chains. I love you. I honor you. I don't want you to suffer. He's not returning reviling for reviling. He simply, simply gives the urgent plea. There's a couple of applications we can pull from this <coughs> as we close out our time. First of all, we need to realize the relationship between the Great Commission and the providence of God. The providence of God is, is, is basically how he controls and leads all of history to be exactly what he has planned. He's in charge of everything. You got a flat tire this morning? That was God. You woke up and the roses smelt beautiful? Praise the Lord, that was God. You got here and you, you ran into somebody you haven't seen in a while and, and you have a, have a spark of joy? Praise the Lord, that was God. He controls it all. But what we need to realize is that God's providence is most primarily aimed at the advancing of the word of his son through the gospel. So that if you want to be right in the stream of exactly what God is doing in the world, then get active on the great commission of Jesus Christ. What we see is that when we make it a priority like Paul did, then God comes in and is just the wind in the sails 
that makes it work exponentially. We heard Keith pray over our offering. Lord, we'll give, and we've been sacrificing and praying over our budget, and we're giving, but just take it and blow it up. Just, like, we've got, we've got 10 square meters of cloth on this little boat of ours, but Lord, send a hurricane. Send an easterly wind that'll send us careering over the Pacific. Take our efforts and explode them. Multiply them, Lord. And that's what the book of Acts has been. The word of the Lord multiplied at the work of the Lord. And the greatest exaltation occurred after Jesus' crucifixion. Therefore, opportunities of greatness like preaching to the kings bearing witness before Parliament, maybe going to the, the High Court of Australia with a religious freedoms case, whatever, and you get this opportunity to preach, whatever. You can just imagine, like, the coolest opportunity to preach. Those don't just come because we're the biggest giver, we're the best dressed, we're the most glorious Christian. They, they come to those who sacrifice the most. Here's bow-legged, mono-browed, scarred-up Paul having this opportunity. Like Jesus' death, which precipitated the exaltation, so death to self precipitates the, uh, 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 the great exaltation in the Great Commission. Now, sometimes it's really easy. Our greatest abilities to proclaim the gospel can, in providential ways, like God just gives these awesome opportunities, sometimes they happen easily. I was at work this past week, and I was, I, I was, I was, I was working, I'm a nurse, I do that one, one day a week, and I was there, and, and I was doing stuff, and I was clicking on the computer in, the, in a, busy, uh, uh, a busy nurse's station and somebody said, oh, Tom, how's your work at the church going? He says, oh, it's, it's great, Mary. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. God's, God's really moving uh, among, our, among our people. And she goes, oh, you're preaching on this Sunday? Oh, she didn't say preach. She said, you talking? You talking this Sunday? Hey, I'm, I'm talking this Sunday. And she goes, oh, do you want to give us a sermon? <laughs> <laughs> Crying kid can wait. Meds can wait. <laughs> Not really. Uh, but I go, yeah. <laughs> so I sat there, and for, for 10 minutes, I was watching the, watching the buzzers, making sure no, nobody needed me. I was, yeah, I'm preaching. This was two weeks ago. Yeah, I'm preaching on Paul's address to the Ephesian pastors and basically just told them. I, I think I, I tried to pull a, a, book, a page out of Paul's book. I just spent about one second describing the context. And then, and then just. And so what Paul was saying was, Jesus died for sinners. And there was a Mormon in there, made sure I said about the exclusivity of Jesus and his divinity. There was a Muslim doctor. There was all sorts of people around that were just sort of coming. And I've never had such an easy... Why can't it always be this easy? Just find a letter in your mailbox. You will be presenting an international address today on whatever you want. Gold! Rarely that easy. Rarely that easy. Mostly, it comes on the back or through a lot of difficulty, a lot of suffering, little mini-sacrifices. So, for example, Peter and John got in legal trouble, and then they got to speak to the whole Sanhedrin. So I'm saying, if we want the opportunities, expect the hardships to get there. We go downhill to gain the momentum. Or Stephen, he, he got to preach to everybody and be the sermon that really worked into Paul's heart that he, even when he's writing years later in his epistles, he's reflecting on Stephen's sermon. He got to be that guy, Stephen, first martyr of the church. But he had to get his head caved in by rocks first. Not first, but in, in, involved in that. He had to be put on trial. Paul, he, he got to be here and, 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 and preach to the kings. And then he eventually gets to go and speak to Nero, the most powerful person in the world that at that time had ever lived. 
but he had to go on a near year of being imprisoned and shipwrecked and charged and falsely accused that even most Christians departed from him and didn't want anything got to do with him. The great sacrifice opened the great doors. Maybe for you, it's, it's you get in trouble at work because you keep on speaking about Jesus when they don't ask. And then you get to go and sit in front of all of the heads of departments and all of the bosses and the CEOs and give an account for what you've been doing. Sweet. But it took a cost. Maybe it's the gospel is getting you in trouble with, and somebody in another country gets dragged before terrorists and they get to preach to the heads of the Taliban. But of course that came at great cost. Maybe it's like Thomas Cramner in the time of the Reformation. He, he got to preach to all of the Catholic power people, right? all of the authorities in the Catholic Church in England. He was, uh, sorry, the, 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 the uh, uh, high Anglican Church in England. You're going to pull me up for that? I know, they weren't Catholic, they were Anglican. And he got to, to preach to all of the royalty at his trial for minutes away from being burned. They're about to kill him and said, you know, you can step up and apologize to everybody for what you've been saying. Okay, went up, ripped up his speech and preached the gospel of justification and then burned at the stake he was minutes later. But we don't, we don't get to avoid the cost. We don't get to avoid the cost just because it's for the mission. Peter and John still got the beating and then went out dancing. Paul still had his head lopped off by the Caesar uh, the next time he got charged. Stephen still died. Paul still had to suffer all of this time of loneliness and imprisonment. We don't get to escape those things, but we should see that these things are opportunities for us to spread the gospel and how glorious it is when we see God do that. Verse 32, if you had read further than what I had said, and you, you read verse 32, you probably think that Paul jumped the gun and now he's wasted missionary time. Verse 32, after Peter, Paul had appealed to Caesar, Agrippa says, to Festus, this, he could have been free. This man could have been free because we didn't find anything actually wrong with him. He's a jerk, but we, no, there's nothing legally wrong. He could have gone. But now he's appealed to Caesar. So we actually, by law, have to keep him locked up and send him on a ship where he's going to get shipwrecked and then uh, stranded on an island so that he can go to Rome eventually and get charged by Caesar. And we might think, see, he shouldn't have defended himself. What a waste. No. Paul had longed to go to Rome he wanted to go there as a missionary and saw this as an opportunity to get there. Jesus had told him he will bear witness before kings. Psalm 119 verse 46, I will also speak your testimonies before kings and I will not be put to shame. Paul had that written on his heart. Can I just tell you a couple of things that happened because he went to Rome? He ended up going to Nero and giving his defense, but before that happened, he was... He went to Crete as a little stopover. And that's the only time we have anybody going to Crete until Titus is sent there to manage all of the reviving churches and bringing them into order. Paul gets a couple of nights stopover in Crete on his way to Rome, revival. Chapter 8, sorry, chapter 28, verse 9, he's shipwrecked on Malta, and then he gets all these opportunities to do miracles and preach, and there's uh, such a revival that the politicians get involved to try and stamp it all out because he's going to Rome. In chapter 28, verse 30, while he's in Rome under house arrest waiting, they say to him this, this, this little phrase that they didn't think is going to get him in any trouble, and you can have visitors if you need, right? We're not going to pay, feed you. You can have people visit you if you want them to feed <laughs> okay, So what Paul heard was, I can fill my living room with people to preach to. Thank you. Tighten the chains if you want. 
And he sat there, and for day after day, and in fact for many months, he was preaching to Rome that which had been put on his heart for so long. This is the providence of God in missions. God loves blessing people who are just willing to suffer, willing to be the fool, willing to preach the gospel when you get an opportunity. Maybe it's at the workstation. Maybe it's at the lunchroom. Maybe it's, 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 it's whatever opportunity you get in court, whatever it is. He loves to bless those who are faithful with his word. I think of when we were in, we were in Myanmar uh, on a missionary uh, trip and, and one of the members of the team had just been, been stirred one morning to pray for an opportunity to preach the gospel on TV and everyone in the prayer room sort of looks and like, man, he's weird. He's just weird, this guy. And he was. Anyway, everyone was out there handing out tracts and a documentary team just walks up to the team. White people, what are you doing? Oh, we're spreading a message. Can you tell us? Reeling live to hundreds of thousands over the country. <laughs> what? Well, we're here preaching Jesus. You are all sinners. You must repent. And so the gospel went out. I think of when we, when we were handing these tens of thousands of tracts out and, and we would just hand wads. You know, we have wads of them handing out in huge backpacks and, and these buses would turn up and these rude Burmese people would step out, see what the white people had, take a bunch speak something in their language and just start sharing it to people. They took these wads and every bus that would come, they'd just, we'd offer them and these people would take some and just hand it out on the bus trips. And, and hundreds of kilometers away, a couple of days later, we were getting phone calls from the very north of the country in rural Burma where people were calling the phone on the back saying, I just found this under my seat. I'm in rural border Burmese uh, wetlands. Tell me more about this eternal life available in Jesus. I remember when, when a whole street was filled with tracks. We handed them out and we came back around and they'd all been thrown in the bin. It was a Muslim area. They didn't want to read it. The very bin that a very poor little evangelist lady named Thunder came by, having handwritten all of her tracts that she would hand out. What an effort. She'd handed out her last handwritten tract for the day with her daughter being chased by a Buddhist priest with a knife and she escaped and she was in the Muslim part of town and she went to throw something in the bin and as if delivered by angels on a sheet, a bag, a bin bag full of tracts in her language. She was so confused and praised the Lord, dancing on her way home. And we got to hear the story later. How much God just loves to back those people and the churches who are willing to be foolish enough to believe the word of the Lord, even in this day and age, this culture, through these weak people, will increase and multiply. Let us never be found faithless with this eternal momentum-building word. Let's pray. God, it feels far too short to go and finish the book of Acts in so short a time. The, the amazing mission, all the details we missed out on, the, the, the fellowship times, the, the, the way that you would work in miracles among the church. All we've been looking at is the sermons, but Lord, we know that's the eternal proclamation of your word. There's so much that you do in our church, but let us be focused on hearing your word preached, putting it deeper into our hearts, speaking about it around the dinner table in the car, in fellowship afterwards, and then gossiping it out into the community. And God, as we do that, I just pray somewhat prophetically that you would give people in this church the opportunity to speak before kings, maybe as missionaries that are arrested in other countries. 
Maybe as those who have opportunities before the royalty of our day and in our country. Maybe, maybe people who are simply given amazing opportunities through suffering. Lord, let us be those who will support them. Come to their defense. Come to their support. But let us be those whatever opportunities you give us. And if we labor our whole life in obscurity, then may you be praised, Lord God. But may you give us great opportunity to give great witness to your glorious gospel. And Father God, for those in our room today who are, who are here and they're hearing the songs sung and they're hearing the gospel preached and they know nothing of the light out of darkness, of the opened eyes out of blindness, of the power of God from the power of Satan, of the forgiveness of sins, of having a, a place among the family of God, among, about repentance from their sins and turning to living for God, about Jesus dying and rising and giving light to all those who believe. As they sit in, none of that is a lived experience. I pray, Lord God, that you would, by your Spirit, give them eyes to see, give them heart to believe, Forgive them of their sins and bring them into our family, God. We pray to you because only you can do that to these lost souls. Bring salvation to this house. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We honor you and glorify you. And everybody said, amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.